on more than one occasion if it was if the need was there it was like that grief energy was flowing out of my arm down my into my hands into my fingers into the biro texture or crayon whatever I was doing and it would then you could see it on paper You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Well, hello there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I... Well, I've just been really impacted and opened to this interview today. It's a really special one. It's with Rosemary Wanganine, who is an Adelaide-based griefologist. She is, in fact, the founder of Griefology. And not only is Rosemary incredibly wise, connecting, and so warm, as you'll as you'll no doubt hear through the course of her offerings today but it was an in-person interview which was beautiful and a real reminder of how we're finding our way through what has been a time of deep unsettling through the course of a pandemic the topic of today's interview is really around grief and I think that this actually has a thread that links to the pandemic as well. As you'll hear Rosemary share in today's interview, grief, trauma, pain, these are human experiences. Rosemary shares to us her personal wisdom, and I think she is incredibly profound in highlighting that her experience is our experience, is the human experience. So I have no doubt that as you find some silent time after this episode, some alone time, which Rosemary will be explaining more in this interview as to why that's important when you're finding that space to reflect, you'll recognize perhaps your own sufferings and challenges, perhaps from many, many years back, these threads of healing and integration that you can offer yourself. And perhaps from more recently, you know, there has been struggle and suffering through this pandemic. And perhaps that might be a lens that you take into your journey as well. Now, we do an acknowledgement, a welcoming to country at the beginning of this conversation. However, I'd like to offer a welcome to country in this moment too. As we start into an introduction of Rosemary, I would like to acknowledge that I am here working, living on the beautiful land of the Ghana people in what is now known as Adelaide, South Australia, and to acknowledge the cultural and spiritual roots of the Ghana people that are as strong now as they ever were, to acknowledge the elders, past, present, and emerging, and in that acknowledgement to specifically acknowledge Rosemary and the generous offerings she shares with us today. 
I would also like to pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be tuning in and joining us here. So Rosemary is a griefologist. She developed griefology. She is a qualified educator and assessor, program designer and facilitator, loss and grief counselor, public speaker and a published author. As you can see, she has many titles and skills to her name. The foundation to these abilities derives from her lived experience of grieving. Through her personal loss and grief from 1987 to 1992, during her personal grieving journey, she set up the Sacred Site Within Healing Center. She founded this in 1993. Rosemary is a proud South Australian Aboriginal woman with ancestry and ancestral links to Garna of the Adelaide Plains, where I am resting right now, and Wilringu from the West Coast, also of Australia. After the death of their beloved mother, Rosemary and six of her eight siblings became part of the stolen generation. It is a traumatic story, but by reconnecting with her spiritual ancestors, Rosemary managed to survive the many years of loss, grief, and fear. Years later, as an intuitive researcher and respected academic trying to make sense of her own experience, Rosemary had a life-changing epiphany. She realized her own contemporary loss and unresolved grief was compounding and complicating the broader systemic cultural losses and unresolved grief that all Aboriginal people have experienced since invasion, since colonization. She saw how all Aboriginal Australians and entire community were being funneled into disadvantage. Rosemary used this intuitive research to develop a new and innovative academic cultural methodology. She reframed the deficit Western construct of Aboriginal disadvantage and reclassified it under the umbrella of griefology. The unique and innovative model she personally developed, the seven stages to integrating loss and grief, is the path to Aboriginal prosperity, and she offers us an understanding of this framework in the interview today, a path that all of us as humans can benefit from. So I would love to introduce you to Rosemary now, and... Yes, please, please, if you can, turn off distractions, turn off um, other devices, background noise. If you do have the space, I recognize that some of you may be listening and commute and the likes, but I would really, really encourage you to soak up this interview, to soak up Rosemary's wisdom, and I will jump back in for some concluding thoughts at the end. Here is Rosemary now. So Rosemary, welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. I am so delighted as we were chatting about um, just before, this is the first time I've got to sit down in person with someone since like really before COVID. So it's really a delight to be here with you today. 
Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. And as we start our time together, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we are connecting today, which is Garna land, and to acknowledge the elders past, present and future, and to really acknowledge you in this lineage, Rosemary. So thank you for being with us here today. And yeah, to extend my respects to you and and your your lineage. Thank you so much, Kate. And because so, um, if I can do a, a Ghana welcome, um, oh my gosh, um, yes. um, Marnie, I, yeah, um, uh, it's it's um, uh, yeah, my way of, of welcoming uh, non-Aboriginal people. So, um, um, uh, you know, you doing the, the acknowledgement is such a powerful and emotional thing for for me as a Ghana woman and uh, and you'll understand you know when we get into the, the conversation you'll understand why it's so emotional for me to have non-Aboriginal people doing acknowledgements um, but it's such a pleasure to be here I'm so excited to um, share with you what I what I know about and what I um, have learned about um, this new concept called griefology and griefology, I mean, it's, it's such a, an amazing name too, which I know you'll you'll share with us how it came to be that it came to you, which I think is brilliant. Would you mind, just for listeners who haven't met you before, come across your work, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and the offerings that you bring, you know, what you're teaching about and how you're working with people? Okay, so, so um, I... I came from policies, practices and procedures that were you know, quite inhumane at the time for, for Aboriginal people. And um, when I was born um, in 1955, I had to be brought back to my mission, which is Point Piers on York Peninsula. And my um, uh, Aboriginal family, um, the community, we weren't allowed to come and go freely off of Point Piers. And we had to get permission. And so for the first five years of my life, I'm what I often say contained, controlled and manipulated um, yeah. on this on the on, on our mission. And these missions and reserves were set up all around Australia. And you know, you know, very 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 sad, but it was a part of the um, uh, ongoing genocide. So um, you know, there were three warfares that came over here, outright warfare. Um, you know, that's about killing as many traditional ancestors as quickly as possible. Then germ warfare for like another way. And then whoever was left um, uh, came under the uh, psychological warfare. So when I was born, I was actually born into that one, absolutely unbeknownst to me, of course, yeah. but um, uh, born into the psychological warfare where um, when we moved off of Point Pierce, we had to get permission to, to go to, to move into Clare. Um, you know, we weren't allowed to speak um, our Aboriginal English because by the time I was born, um, by the time my mum and dad were born, they had no language either. And so I didn't have language. They were my grandmother, my mum's mum, by law, wasn't allowed to teach her daughter Gugaza and Wurrungur language. So I never, I grew up not hearing my mum 
speak language, never heard my dad speak, speak Ghana language. Um, so that's all part of the, the genocide. And, um, you know, that that meant I couldn't teach my children and they couldn't teach their children. And so that's the, the, the background that I come from. And then part of the Stolen Generation, you know, some of your listeners may know about the Stolen Generation. Um, that's my experience where I experienced all forms of violations. Mm-hmm. And um, in my teenage years and then 20s, um, you know, uh, I was swept up in, in family violence, adult family violence, because I remember experiencing childhood family violence. Right. And and my 20s were um, growing up having no idea who I was. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that um, I... I, I guess I could put it like um, uh, I, I hit it before by ending up in a woman's shelter in Sydney, badly assaulted in my second marriage. But that was a, you know, on reflection um, in 87, I, it was something that I, I needed to experience because I didn't have that experience. I wouldn't have been able to ask the question, you know, how the hell did I end up busted up yet again and that um, question became my journey back into my my past yeah so um, uh, I mean there's more to, to talk to but I'll um, um, I'll maybe stop there see if you have it's really so you know there's been so much that you've had to navigate so much pain and suffering so much trauma and then a grieving process that comes with that. And you describe, you know, really against all odds, making it through to your 30s, you know, in, in a culture that's so oppressive and really, as you said, was an extermination culture. In your 30s, you had this transformation, you know, this, this period where I, I suppose that incident was a catalyst if we I don't know is that would that be the right word for absolutely a catalyst transformation which is incredible and profound and and this really this is where the the formation of griefology comes from would you mind sharing with listeners what that transformation was like how you took this grief and trauma and and how you worked into that because as you said you had no idea who you were so how did you how did you come to understand yourself rosemary I know, you know, when people, you know, like yourself, like you just ask you now, you know, every, every, almost every time I get thrown with um, uh, this process that I went through, and what's really critical to understand, Caitlin, and your um, your audience is, is it, so when I left that woman's shelter in 1987, um, at the time I had no idea what the hell I was doing. Um, as I said, had no idea who I was either. Um, but what had what had happened in that in that woman's shelter is I had um, a significant dream, and the the dream was about um, it woke me up, and I was in tears. And intuitively, I got out of bed in tears, went to the uh, the only mirror in my room, looked at myself, and said. 
how the hell did you end up busted up yet again? And within seconds, this old ancient grandmother's face came over mine and told me, daughter, you've got to find faith and trust in yourself. I had no idea that I didn't have it. But that, so ending up in that woman's shelter and then having that dream and that old ancient grandmother um, telling me I've got to find faith and trust forced me, well, um, it, it forced me, but it was so intuitive um, that I had to go back into my past to find it. Obviously, I couldn't go into my future to see where did I lose it. It meant I had to go back into my past. And so I was, what, I, what I was doing in that five-year period was un, intuitively, unconsciously developing the, the through my lived experiences of, of delving back into all of those violations and what happened to my ancestors, I was in effect developing my uh, the model called the seven phases to integrating loss and grief. And what's really important is the word integrating. So mainstream um, society, you know, I was growing up hearing, you know, we've got to look for closure, we've got to look for closure. And I... I I know that word, but when I was developing um, the, the the model, um, sort of like nearing the end, I thought, you know, closure doesn't make sense to me. That wasn't my experience. But what did I do? And I started to realise that when I was delving into each of my violations, childhood violations, double generation stuff, I found myself... Um, compelled to integrate what had happened to me, not not shut it off, um, shut it out um, uh, by closing the door and embracing what had happened because everything in my life that had happened um, had happened for a reason and it was my thinking processes. How do I How do I interpret what happened to me? You know, I can either stay victimised by it, which is absolutely fine and, and, and my right to be victimised, my right to be a victim, Yeah. but I can also use what had happened to me. And what I found intuitively that I was doing was, um, so phase, I might go into the, the seven phases now because phase one was me having that um, contemporary reality in that woman's shelter. Yeah. And then forced to go back into my past to look at my phase two as my childhood um, losses and unresolved grief and my all of my violations. Phase three is, is looking at um, so I was I was forced to go back even further. So when I was in my childhood violations, the question came up was, um, you know, why was I removed? And it meant I had to go back even further. So phase three is looking at not just the Australian um, history and ask the question, why was it so violent? Not what had happened, because I'd already known what had happened. Just got to read books and talk to academics. Um, but what my question was, um, why did it happen and why was it so violent? So not just not just unpacking Australian history, why was it so violent? I had to go back to English history. What yeah. were they doing in 1788? 
how are they violating their own people, sending little children down into mines and they would be killed down there, they would get sick down there, they would die from um, these being in the mines. But these, and I say this with the utmost respect, this patriarchal society, you know, was very, very powerful, very, very controlled and very manipulative um, and using and abusing children um, uh, in, in this part of the world. But then I ask the question, but why were they so um, uh, committing um, unhealthy anger, rage, violence, inhumane atrocities, psychopathic behaviours on their own people? Why were they doing it that way? And then my research took me back even further to look at or to find um, the Roman Empire and without any shaming, blaming, um, demonising or vilifying, the Roman Empire had invaded the Indigenous peoples um, in what we now know of, of um, Great Britain in 43 AD. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. So, but why were they so inhumane, committing inhumane atrocities? as well all around this part of the world. Same question, why? And so all of that's uh, phase three, right back until I found a guy called Plato. Plato called the idea that grief is not only illogical, but it's a weakness. As well as, he goes on to say, therefore stay away from um, uh, like the arts and uh, drama out of fear it might trigger it. So then I'm thinking, okay, that he's coining the idea that grief is not only illogical, but it's a weakness. It'll make you weak and 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 shut down your creativity because it might trigger it. And that became my aha moment. Okay, so so Plato in his grief stricken state through the death of his beloved teacher Socrates who was put to death, um, he's, he's now uh, almost encouraging these young boys who became young men, who became old men, fear grieving, fear getting emotional, fear getting sad, fear crying, which is all a part of the grieving process because the human body is designed to, to grieve, um, but human beings are designed to have loss. It's a part of life, you know, to make room for the next generation and the generation thereafter. And and so so now I'm thinking if these young boys who became young men, who became old men, shut down out of fear of being labelled weak, what happened to their healthy grief anger? And so I'm thinking they had to, that, that had to... Uh, escalate into unhealthy grief anger that escalates into rage that escalates into violence that escalates into inhumane atrocities and then that escalates into psychopathic behaviors and then if you look at the timeline you look at the roman empire how they were so um and this is not a shame blame that the roman empire because they by the time the roman empire comes in you know they they're grief stricken human beings right across this part of the world. So they're, they're now committing psychopathic behaviours um, 
you know, decapitating human beings and just manning them to a cross and just leaving them there. And I'm thinking, how can a human being do that? And so what I think happens to a human being with these young boys, um, their bodies is so full of grief, energy, the spirit, it's like the, the, the body rejects the spirit and then it shuts down their humanity. They can't see, feel or hear the pain of another human being and so they can go out and slaughter and rape and pillage and massacre um, and not, not be able to stop it, yeah. not be able to see it, feel it and hear the cries of another human being, let alone little children. Mm. And so that's when I knew that um, you know, loss and grief is really where we have to find our way back to as humans. And, and then I asked the question, so I'm now coming out of phase three and looking at the next question, which was, um, what sort of culture did I come from? Um, because I got told in primary school in Stolen Generation that Aboriginal people were savages. And I remember shutting down. And and so now here I am in my, so I was about 12 when that teacher said that. Now I'm in my 30s asking this question. And, and what I found was um, I come from a, a, a complete civilization, organized, uh, uh, highly intelligent um, peoples. Um, that's where I come from. And grieving was very structured, sacred, and very powerful. And so in that five-year period, so from, from starting in 1987 in that woman's shelter, coming up out the end in 1992, um, I didn't know it at all, but I was actually going through a deep grieving process and and emptying my physical body out of all that, all of my grief energy that I've been accumulating from my ancestors or that I was carrying yeah. on behalf of my ancestors, hence the intergenerational. Yeah. And then what happened to me as a kid, I had to express all of that out of my body that I can hear my ancestors communicate to me to be able to then um, come back to phase six. So phase four, phase four is looking at the, the physicalities of, of traditional culture and five is looking at the spiritual the spirituality of culture. And so we were able to, through grieving processes, being able to um, connect to ancestors, Mother Earth, the Dreaming Totems. Um, and so then I come all the way back to um, phase six is where I started to put pen to paper, design these seven phases, um, and then develop programs from the seven phases, counselling, very, um, I mean, very uh, basic um, but I always brought in my own lived experiences. This is what I felt that I needed back in, in my time. So I was just sort of tweaking what, what I needed, just a basic um, counselling training with them, uh, an organisation called COPE back in the day, and then um, uh, developed those programs, counselling, um, uh, half-day workshops one day right through to three-day and then phase seven is, is um, looking at 
really deep and meaningful training programs. So that's the, the seven phases and and maybe, so sort of maybe, you know, 2005, um, I started to think about, um, you know, the, the seven phases to integrating loss and grief, loss and grief, loss and grief. I think I was unconsciously looking for a word to uh, encapsulate both of those. And I'm thinking psychology, psychiatry, psychology, griefology, griefology. And then, aha, I think I found a new found um, model um, to, to bring loss and grief back into our, not just the Aboriginal community, but um, I'm finding that griefology can be applied to anybody who just happens to be a human. (laughs) (laughs) Which happens to be all of us. (laughs) Rosemary, it's really profound to watch you, you know, cycle, you know, and, and you said integration, but it was, you were always questioning. It was never that you were shutting doors or trying to shut things off or block things out. You were asking why you were digging. And I imagine as you were exploring, you know, history books and working your way back to Plato, that it was exploring inside yourself as well. That there's this constant almost unfolding and seeing different connections. And as you said, you know, it's very human, this experience of suffering and grief and loss. And for a lot of us, you know, a lot of humans, we exist in these patriarchal models where the power structures have set with those who you've described as really repressing these human experiences or perceived weaknesses, essentially the pain of being human. Yeah. How would you describe grief? Because I think it's actually, as you describe that, I go, oh, thank goodness I can feel this, right? Like, thank goodness we can feel grief. Although having um, existed in these structures, I'm sure I have have ever so many urges to repress at times. Mm. What would we describe grief as, like as a working model? Yeah, so when I did my training um, back in the day, with um, bereavement educational services, um, and they they taught us about um, eight common grief emotions, amongst a whole range of other things. But um, what struck me um, is that they they were um, uh, describing and teaching us about these eight common grief emotions, and and I've got to see if I can remember them all now. But it's like grief shock. Grief, anger, grief, apathy, grief, um, depression—nothing to do with with the, the the psychological psychiatric diagnosis, but grief, depression, um, grief, guilt, um, uh, grief, um, tears, um, and the two more that uh, that I that just misses me um, for now, but. Um, uh, so, so those those eight common grief emotions is what all human beings experience, and 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 we we experience those. The, our human body experiences those, and and so I started to to think about you know what is, what is grief, um, 
So I, I just outlined the grief emotions. But I remember, you know, in my training that I can't remember them describing what is grief. And so I, I needed to understand mainstream's understanding of grief. And so I, I just used, you know, a, a number of their dictionaries and looked it up. And I thought, okay, um, it's an intense sorrow or, or sadness, sort of something along those lines. And I thought, you know what, oh, that's not what I remember I went through. And so I started to explore my own definition of what grief is. And then I just came up with, with grief is live energy and imagine it like electricity. Um, you know, one puts their tongue on a PowerPoint. Electricity is invisible, is very powerful and can kill us. Yeah, exposed to it, you know. And so that's what I remember I was doing in that five-year period and always have and always will do that now that I understand it. So all the while, um, you know, I was, I was expressing all that um, grief energy, live grief energy out of my body in that five-year period. And and how I was doing that was, um, so there, uh, in my training, I learned about three um, categories of expressing grief. That's uh, writing grief through. So I found myself, um, you know, writing a letter to my mum who had died when I was nine, which what put me into our six of us kids into Stalin generation. So I wrote her a letter and told her how angry I was with her for dying on me. Mm-hmm. I felt abandoned. My nine-year-old felt abandoned. Then I had to write a letter or compelled to write a letter to Captain Cook. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been really angry with him for finding my, my ancestors. Um, so once I did the writings and on, you know, the, on more on more than one occasion, if it was if the need was there, it was like that grief energy was flowing out of my arm, down my into my hands, into my fingers, into the biro, texture or crayon, whatever I was doing, and but then you could see it on paper. Yeah, yeah. It's out. And so that's writing grief through. Then physically using my body. So I um, leaving Sydney to come back to Adelaide um, in May of eighty eight intuitively I started to just walk. So I'd get up 9 o'clock, get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, walk half an hour one way, half an hour back. Um, uh, that's an hour. Yeah. I get the kids off the school. But while I was walking, I was walking not to smell the roses but to walk as fast as I could, yeah. put some speed into it intuitively. And as I was doing that, all this grief energy was being uh, expressed and released it's almost like through the pores of my body, you know, yeah. and then it's out into Mother Nature. So that's physically using my body. And then the third one is um, writing grief through, physically working grief through, talking grief through. So for me as an Aboriginal person, I I was too afraid to go to psychologists, mm-hmm. counsellors, and I feel being shamed, blamed, and, and judged for my predicament. Um, so what I was intuitively doing was talking to myself, so why this and why that, and then left the question open intuitively and wait for ancestors to give me 
the answer. And so what I, what I was doing in that five-year period was finding my way back to my ancestors who guided my ancestors for 60-plus thousand years. They didn't have books, have manuals on how to, you know. Um, but how did they maintain culture? Um, uh, uh, a whole civilization. it was through um, being, doing and saying. Yeah, and so that's 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 what I was doing all intuitively, and so um, having connection to ancestors, they were significant in helping me develop the model and putting meat on the the seven phases model um, and develop griefology. Yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, I can imagine there would have been such um, pain in going through that five years, but also, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, victimization. You were moving through that, weren't you? Because I guess in meeting some of those vulnerable parts and meeting, you know, your nine-year-old self who's angry with mom for dying and these other, you know, versions, moments of yourself... Does a sense of empowerment or strength come, or how would you describe that process? Or is it more just coming into yourself now? What's that process like? Wow. So, so when I when I left that um, woman's shelter, you know, and always on reflecting, this is the only way I um, was able to put into words, and I guess write about what happened to me is when I came out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Then I could look look back. Oh, oh, that's oh, that's what happened. Oh, okay. And then, um, and so, but when I, when I was living in it, incredibly painful. Yeah. In, in incredibly scary. Um, like I had, you know, I was a um, a young mum, um, coming out of a second um, marriage, um, but I was so afraid of going back into my past that I. I feared I would die somehow. And so I had suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a plan. Um, but going through all of that and living in it at the time, something, and I now, again, on reflection, I noted my ancestors that kept me, that old ancient grandmother. Yeah, it was in the mirror. Yeah. Not consciously aware of her, but always on reflection, she was there guiding me. Yeah. Um, and and showing me the way, showing me, giving me signposts. Oh, what's okay? What's that about? Oh, oh, what's this book about? Books would fall off the shelf for me. So, so living it was really, really intensely scary. But I still had to be a mother. I still had to be a, a, a daughter, um, you know, a sister, an aunt, a granddaughter. I still had all those identities that I had to um, uh, balance. But I'm still going through this process on my own. Yeah. Um, so, so, so going, going back and into this process. Um, and particularly finding my, but you touched on them, uh, me finding my, what I now refer to as my 
unhealed inner children. You know, we, we talk about, uh, or, you know, from what I understand, psychology, psychiatry talks about, um, and, and other modalities talk about an inner child. As I'm going through this process, or when I come out the other end, documenting, I found um, I had a I had a, an intense need to document the age that stuff happened to me mm-hmm. and um, what had happened. Just like one line is in this in this tool that I developed, and so um, all of a sudden. I got this A4 piece of paper with um, multiple unhealed inner children looking back at me yeah. on paper, but then realizing I found all of those little ones as I was going through the process and helping them heal because they, for example, I had a seven year old who was going to this Clare Primary School. And uh, she was running late for class one day and the teacher had stopped the whole class and she said, Rosemary Wangadeen, do you know what we ought to do with you? We ought to put a cardboard carton on the side of your desk and on the front of it and on the other side so you can't see the children. The children can't see you and just write dunce all the way around it. And so... And so I didn't know that she was still trapped inside of me as the memory of what happened to her. But also where I started was asking the question, so I'm in my 30s, asking myself the question, why do I always feel like I'm a dummy? Why do I lack confidence, self-esteem, faith and trust in my own abilities? That is what I call um, my diminished attributes. And so... I'm asking the question, left the door open intuitively and then maybe a month or so later, my little seven-year-old, she came back and she reminded me of what I just described happened to her in the classroom. Yeah. And and when that happened to her in the classroom, she went out into recess feeling a dummy, lacking confidence, self-esteem, no faith and trust in her in her abilities. But she also reminded me, you remember when you were running late for class, you were running late with your affirmed attributes called confidence, having confidence, having self-esteem, believing that you're intelligent. You had faith and trust in your own abilities. And how she knew that is that she remembers taking homework home and getting help from her mum and dad, bringing it back to, to the teacher. When she would receive it back, there'd be a gold star or good girl or well done, Rosemary. And she remembers standing really proud, getting comments back like that. So she reminded me on this day that she was running late, that she had those affirmed attributes intact. Mm-hmm. The teacher shamed and humiliated her. She went to recess. Um, shamed and lack of confidence, self-esteem, um, now she's a dummy. And so those diminished attributes is what I took into my um, the rest of my childhood, my adolescent, um, into my 30s, until I asked the question, why do I always feel like I'm a dummy? And then I had to then do that with all of my um, diminished attributes. 
You know, why do I feel powerless? Um, uh, you know, that's how I ended up with this um, list of multiple unhealed inner children. And I, I wondered whether this could be what um, is missing from psychology, psychiatry, is these multiple unhealed um, inner children that psychiatry in the old terminology used to call uh, multiple personality disorders. Yeah. Because when I, you know, on reflecting on my unhealed little ones, they develop their own little personalities based on what happened to them. Yeah. You know? And they was very reactive. And so, so I had to find all of them, but particularly my um, seven-year-old to reclaim back my, to help her reclaim back her um, sense of intelligence, confidence, self-esteem, faith and trust in her own abilities so she can go back to phase three and phase four and phase five because she felt um, uh, empowered now. So it came in as a victim and and I had the right to, to, to feel and believe I'm a victim and I own that because yeah. I was, I was victimised. Coming out the other end of this five-year period, I felt different. Mm. I woke up different and I think that's because my spirit came home but also... I felt empowered, so I felt that, and then um, I just started to put pen to paper and develop my, my model. Yeah. And this model that, I mean, also my heart to, to all these little versions of Rosemary <laughs> and to Rosemary navigating that period, as you highlighted, it's not that you got to go isolate yourself from the world as you figured it all out and put the pieces together. You were in the very real storm of getting little people off to school, you know, your children, whilst whilst supporting, you know, your inner children in, in their journeys and being a mother, the daughter, you know, holding this place in community. It's a lot of juggling yeah. and it would have been exhausting and no wonder at times your mind was looking for ways out yeah. and that in connecting then to you know part of yourself to your lineage that your ancestors carried you through you know looking back mm. and connecting those dots it's incredibly profound rosemary mm. and knowing how difficult it would have been for you to get through that alone i can see how having this model you know you've done the work you've been there how that makes it more easeful for others navigating this process mm -hmm. of grief and healing and connecting with the parts of them you know the parts of us as humans who've yeah. been wounded you know rather than figuring out ways where we can detach from that figuring out ways to integrate that and welcoming spirit home perhaps in that absolutely and I you know on more than one occasion you use the word navigate and I think that's really um, uh, uh, impactful it, it is a profound word that I you know because each time you've used the word I'm I, I sort of imagine myself um, you know on this obstacle course, you know, mm -hmm. and um, uh, yeah, all these um, obstacles in front of me. But I, so I had to navigate through all of that yeah. and intuitively, and that's why I refer to myself as an intuitive researcher yeah. um, 
because that's what I had to do intuitively, navigate my way out of being um, other people's victims into um, becoming empowered but integrating all that happened to me as a little kid. In this, you know, I feel like I could spend hours talking about I know I could spend hours and days speaking with you and soaking up your wisdom. Is there something that you might offer individuals who are listening now and recognizing that they are in a grieving process that maybe as part of this patriarchal model that they have been repressing, shutting off, kind of doing what they need to do to survive, but is there something that might offer them a thread to kind of follow a path that is more integrative, a path that is more connecting? Is there something that they could safely start on? Obviously, reaching out and connecting with you is one thing. And listeners, we will be sharing Rosemary's details shortly. But is there a little practice or a place that you might advise someone could safely start? I think two things comes to mind is, yes, I was navigating through this process still having to, you know, be uh, involved in, in life. Um, but I also found this overwhelming need to um, pack up and move out of Adelaide um, to the APY lands, uh, Arnold Britain Jarrah lands, um, where I had, like, Arnold family back there, um, and, and not my biological family, but... but uh, Aboriginal way of my family and that's where I sat down so the first four years was spent uh, working through the grief energy out of my physical body and then then all of 1992 was then enabled me to see feel and hear my ancestors communicate to me so what I'm what I'm alluding to there is really important even though you know one may not be able to pack up and, and go somewhere to 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 be um isolated but we can still do that in adelaide or in 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 in, in a capital city um major country town isolation is really important in the healing and the grieving process That's one thing, yeah. just to be conscious. Okay, yeah. so maybe I need to spend more time with myself, mm. me, myself, and I. <laughs> yes, yeah. me, myself, and I. Yeah. <laughs> um, because by removing oneself, that means more time walking the, along the beach, um, taking the dog for a walk, um, uh, uh, you know, getting up early and, and walking, going out, walking in the, whatever you feel the need to do to isolate yourself from from distractions, as in family, um, uh, uh, work stuff, because by isolating yourself, you're opening up your your consciousness mm-hmm. um, to ask the questions in that column that I've already alluded to, the diminished attributes. Yeah. So I started there. Uh, why do I always feel like I'm a dummy? Why do I lack confidence and self-esteem? So when you're out by yourself pondering, go there. Because you know 
like a, a human knows that they lack this, 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 and this. Mm. And, and 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 you may need to to now name it yeah. and not be afraid to name it. Okay. Um, what do I always feel like I'm a dummy? You can be. You, you might feel that, but now you. you be brave, be courageous to name it. Yeah. And then, okay, so if I'm, if I'm, why do I always feel like I'm a dummy? But where did that come from? I can't go into my future to, to find out where I became a dummy. <laughs> suck it up, suck it in, and know that I might have to go back into my past, into my childhood. Yeah. Um, but it's that 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 isolation and asking the question that I think is, is um, a it's good a starting point. It's a beautiful point. tip, particularly in a world where we're so quick to pick up our phones and scroll and distract that actually we need space, like, to ask these questions and, like, to be able to, to name what's going on. And I like, you know, the little buzzy name it to tame it kind of, you know, phrasing. But, you know, you describe also the columns, which I know is some of the work that you do. So, Rosemary, could you share with listeners who, you know, they're, I'm sure, listeners, you're thinking of how you can get more time sort of alone, whether it's kind of a special room at your place where the phone's outside or maybe going away um, here and there. But where can listeners work with you, Rosemary? Where where are kind of your offerings held? And So um, my... Uh, clinical um, practices down at Semaphore and, and maybe, um, you know, visit my website, you know, Um Have a, have a, a, a nosy around there um, and, you know, always just a phone call or an email away. Um, but, I, you know, just just be brave and um, and ask the question. And, and when you do ask the question in that column of diminished attributes, when you do ask a column, uh, when you do ask a question, why do I always feel like a dummy or why do I lack confidence? Ask the question and just leave it. Because mm. okay. um, what I what happened for me is I intuitively asked the question and then my maybe you know, two or three weeks or months later, my little seven-year-old came back and reminded me of the story. Yeah. So leaving that space to wait for the messenger, the little person who might be able to remind you of of why. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think it's really beautiful in a way, you know, children are known for asking why and we as adults perhaps become so set in what knowledge is, maybe we ask less. So how interesting that almost the asking of why and leaving it open, which might sometimes feel uncomfortable to us, it's in that space that we allow you know, children perhaps to arise or this inner um, knowing to, to have the space to answer. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and and you know that that could um, be very true for you know real children that's that's in our lives already or our grandchildren. You know why this and why that. Um, I'm still talking about our, our little ones, our inner children. They're they're you know they're a part of asking the question why. So whether they're Living 
children that are running around in our lives today or they're, they're, those unhealed little ones, they still have a, a they still have a right to ask the question why. Yeah. And we, the adult self, have got to listen to them ask the question why. Because there's this, there's this unhealed inner children and our adult version of ourselves um, that are in communication with each other. Yeah. It's so beautiful, Rosemary. And as you said, so integrated, you know, to recognize these connections and the healing that griefology offers. I so appreciate you making the time to sit down and, and to making the effort to sit down in person as well. Listeners, all of the links to Rosemary's work are going to be in the show notes. So of course you can grab those if you're driving or, you know, um, multitasking right now. Although I'm sure listeners are going to be heading off for a bunch of space after this, after this and reflecting, right? Listeners, Rosemary, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And yeah, thank you for, Thank you for sharing and also for all of us humans in the world who have grief and loss, thank you for making such effort to like really to establish a system too. You know, you've gone through your own transformation and journey, but I... I cannot imagine the amount of time, resourcing, effort it's actually taken to pull it together in the griefology system and set it up in such a way where we have a little bit of guidance and going back to navigation in a way you've helped us form a compass <laughs> that can kind of support us through a period where we might already be destabilized and have a sense that we're not sure where to put our feet and, and how, to, how to step forward. So thank you. You know, oh, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for inviting me in and that sharing with your audience. Because the more um, I can get griefology out there, um, it, 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 it'll be a greater understood. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, thank you Absolutely. so much. Is there a way for us to say goodbye or so long, or how does how, how can we <laughs> conclude together? Now, can you? Nakanya. So Nakanya um, is, is a, uh, a word that we use. It took, <coughs> we don't say goodbye because um, one never knows when we'll see each other again. So it's just Nakanya, see you later. Another way of saying it. <laughs> Nakanya, Rosemary. Nakanya to Kaden and to your audience. Wow. I'm certainly going to be finding some time to sit, to reflect, to make space, to ask why, to connect with these different parts of myself. And I really hope that you will too. In connecting, in integrating, as Rosemary describes, we really form the conditions to heal, to empower, to then step forward, to move forward in our lives, in this journey. And I really thought Rosemary's use of the word spirit of connecting to her ancestors through this integration was really profound. You know, that as we turn in, there's more there than we might have realized that it's not so self-focused that it can actually be really connecting. So please honor your grieving process, honor this experience of being human Take the opportunity 
to make action of Rosemary's wisdom and her offerings here today. And like Rosemary offered, please head to lossandgrief.com to connect further with what she's doing, both therapeutically and in terms of her workshops. This will all be in the show notes as well. And I wanted to let you know that on March 17th and 18th in 2023, depending on when you're listening to this, Rosemary is going to be offering a griefology symposium, a chance for us to come together and consider the opportunity to extend the griefology framework clinical offerings because this system that rosemary has cultivated has this opportunity to germinate to grow and we can be a part of that so mark your calendars the finer details have not been released yet but if you keep an eye on rosemary's website lossandgrief.com.au or if you head to drcaitlin.com i'll be updating the show notes when i find out more personally and i'll share it with you here if you're a regular wisdom for well-being listeners so make sure you subscribe and i'll keep you up to date through the course of our conversations ahead we will of course reconnect next wednesday on our wisdom for well-being release day so subscribe and i wish you well i wish you some moments away from the phone i wish you some moments of quiet in your car or outside the door before you head into the house just a few moments to breathe and to maybe start that process of tuning in and connecting to your inner wisdom Thank you for being here. And thank you again to Rosemary for sharing her wisdom with us here today. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.